You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. Well, for the next 10 weeks or so, uh, we are going to be talking about what forms us. What are the things that we are committed to and internally and inadvertently, what are the things that because we are committed to will form our hearts, our affections, and ultimately our lives? Now, I grew up in a church that loved the Bible. I was taught the Bible. I was taught about the Bible. Uh, I was involved in Bible drill. And uh, the older I got, the more I found the Bible to be intriguing. And the more I learned about the Bible, uh, ironically, the more my ego grew about my knowledge of it. And I remember getting into college and getting enamored with new insights and nuggets found in the scriptures. And uh, it, it was invigorating, actually, uh, but not necessarily in a good way, because I was learning to wield the Bible like a sledgehammer. Uh, I was less interested in what the Bible had to say about me personally, and I was much more interested in how I could use the Bible to my advantage intellectually. And years into college, an older, wiser man pulled me aside on Cumberland Avenue at Panera Bread and looked me in the face and said, Wesley, I think you love the Bible more than you love the God of it. And I think you love the theology that talks about your God more than you love the God of it. And how true that was and how difficult that was to hear. And my story with the Bible is complicated. Uh, I grew up in a Southern conservative church. The Bible was esteemed. I never wondered if the Bible was the Word of God without error. I did wonder, however, if the Bible was meant for anyone outside of my theologically narrow suburban white context. I had friends who had Patriot Bibles and Bibles for dads and Bibles for moms. I even remember in middle school seeing a Bible with a gun emblem on it. Now, at the time, I didn't think much of it because wasn't the metaphor that the Bible was the sword meant to cut and slice open anyway? Uh, And that's just my background with the Bible you have a background too. Others I know grew up with little knowledge of the Bible. It was a placeholder in the church. Uh, It was more a status symbol than it was a way of life. Uh, And it was a book that was important for general guidance, but not necessarily to be read or embodied. Uh, There were parts of it that were difficult to read and explained away as mythical And there were other parts of it that are kind of like God's skeletons in the closet that we don't want to talk about because it's awkward and we don't know how to engage those difficult passages of Scripture. Uh, And over time, the Bible becomes this outdated, washed-up book that has a compelling figure in it in the middle of the story named Jesus, who 95% of the time we think has good things to say, but the 5% of the time that we disagree with them, we are out. And... I don't know what your story is with the Bible, but as we jump in, let's just be honest. We all have our own journey. Given the demographic in this room and given the stats that are out there, it's highly likely that some of you have been damaged by someone who has misused the Bible. It's inevitable. And let me just say, as someone who comes from a tradition that does that often in the name of truth, I am sorry. Uh, I am sorry. Because as I get older, the scripture has gotten clearer in parts, and it has gotten more complex in parts. 
I wrestle with the mirage that Christianity can be in our day. If you read the library of scripture and have not wrestled with it and don't have questions about God and the world and suffering and humanity, are we reading the same thing? Scripture is comprised of 66 different books, though that's probably a poor descriptor considering that not every book is really a book. It is more a litany of letters and biographies and these things called oracles and prophecies. There's historical narrative and wisdom literature. Uh, there are apocalyptic writings. This book is written by many authors over many centuries in different languages to different people groups with different problems. It's a very, very, very complex document. So as we jump into the topic of the Bible or scripture, as it is known historically, there are just a few disclaimers. And the first is this. If we think we can just open up the scriptures and sort of fend for ourselves 2,000 years later and completely understand and comprehend all the text is trying to say by sheer willpower and general reflection, then we are either really arrogant or really aloof. Now, this doesn't mean the Holy Spirit cannot shine the hope of the gospel in our hearts or that we can never understand anything about the scripture on our own. Uh, but it does mean that if we're relying purely on Western intellect in the English language with an individualistic world view, then we need to reevaluate what exactly we're doing. This text has been discussed and argued and pined over for thousands of years. Disclaimer number two is this. The Bible has been used to justify so many things. It has been used to defend chattel slavery. It has been used to excuse or justify genocide. It has been used to condemn people and excuse people. It has been used to justify sin and execute people who sin. It's been used to manipulate and coerce and force people to do things that the book inherently contradicts. It has been wielded as a weapon against neighbors, against nations, against children, against women, maybe even against you. But the challenge is not so much with Scripture itself, but more with us who do not know how to rightly handle it. So imagine someone gave you the keys to a car, and instead of taking the keys and putting it in the ignition and driving up the Blue Ridge Parkway with the windows down and the sun beaming in your face on a 65 degree day in April, instead of doing that, you take the keys and you key the car. The keys will key the car. That is an effective way to take the paint job off of a vehicle. But that is not the purpose of the keys. The purpose is to start the car so that you can transport from one place to another. And that is how we treat and mistreat the scripture. Yes, it can do massive damage. And in some ways, people have used it to really harm others. Maybe even you, but that is not its purpose. It doesn't seek to destroy. Rather, it seeks to do the opposite. It seeks to build up, to help us become, by the Spirit, people who look like Jesus. Which brings me to the third disclaimer. I want this to be a space where you feel confident 
and comfortable in asking questions. I don't want you to not bring them because you expect a shutdown or because you expect a cliche response that you've heard a hundred times. I want you to bring your questions. Sarah and I desire your questions. Shocker, we have some too. And to read your Bible and never have a genuine, honest question is to really not understand what you are reading. Asking questions and having doubts are part of what it means to actually have faith. Hoping and longing and desiring, coupled with uncertainty and uh, doubt even, and maybe some questions and feeling challenged and also curious. It's the tension that we hold as followers of Jesus. Good Friday leaves room for us to ask questions. The disciples did. You think about it. The disciples had been following this Jewish rabbi for three years, and all of a sudden he says, the path to redeem the world is hanging in the sky as a victim of unjust murder. That is the pathway to love, and that is the pathway to peace, and that is the pathway to joy. Really? Really? It just feels like an appropriate place to ask some questions. So, and yet, as a church, as long as I am a pastor here, as long as the Lord allows, we'll be a people who are committed to being formed by the Scripture. And we care about Scripture and not merely knowing it. We care about embodying it and on some ways becoming it or becoming the per, uh, becoming like the person to whom the scripture is about. So let's dive into Luke 24. It is likely that Cleopas and the other person who was walking with him, we don't know who it was, a man or a woman, was part of the larger group of 72 that followed Jesus's life and ministry and sat under his teachings. In other words, these are not random strangers. These are committed Jewish disciples. And they're walking from Jerusalem, most likely from celebrating the Passover meal, mourning the public death of their rabbi. And the text says that as they are walking, Jesus drew near them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And they begin to explain all that's gone on over the last three years and all that's gone on over the last three days. And they said this line, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. In other words, he was the one that we read about in the Isaiah scroll. And he was the one that was supposed to bring redemption to us. And he was the one that was supposed to save us from Roman rule. And he was the one who was supposed to free us. He was supposed to end injustice. He was supposed to advocate for us. He was supposed to rule as our king. We were hoping he would do that. And even now, some women came back and startled us and said they had seen a vision of angels who for some strange reason said he was alive. And of course, when they came back and told us, others went and didn't find him there. Maybe I'm taking a bit of creative license and liberty, but can't you just hear the sadness and the frustration and a little bit of the disenchantment in their voice? And then when they are done lamenting and they are done explaining, Jesus gently but firmly says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, if you are unfamiliar with your Old Testament, it breaks down three ways. The law refers to the first five books of the Old Testament. The prophets consist of eight major prophets like Joshua and Judges and 12 minor ones like Amos and Micah. And the writings consist of the Psalms and the Proverbs and Song of Solomons and a few others. And so starting with Moses, who was really the first great prophet that the Jews knew about and that God had instituted, Jesus begins the greatest Bible lesson ever told. He walks through why he is the great fulfillment of the law, the Passover lamb sacrificed for the sins of his people, and the great high priest who now represents us to God. He explains that he is their Sabbath rest, and his body is the very temple of God, and he is the shepherd of the sheep, and the living water that will never run out. And he is the bread from heaven, and the king who will sit on David's throne. And actually, in the very next account that Luke gives of Jesus' appearance post-resurrection, he meets his disciples and says this, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. The culmination and climax of the entire Old Testament is before them in flesh and blood. They can literally touch the prophesied king. Now, I could go into more depth here, but I think a better way to talk about the Bible is to give you two images Okay, two word pictures that will serve us as we mine the scriptures together. The first is this. These scriptures are a window into a story. So imagine for a moment that you step toward a window. And you begin to peer out and watch as the kids play and parents laugh and grills cook. You see parties thrown. You see the sun rising. You see squirrels at play. You see an ecosystem. You see lives at work. You see joy and sorrow. You see stories. When we open the scripture, we are putting our face up to the window of a story. The Bible is a long story. It's a beautiful story, and it's a compelling story, and sometimes it's a difficult story to read. It's a story with a million actors, but one main one. And it's a story with a million subplots, but one plot. It's the minor plots of scandals, reckless behavior, abuse, murder, greed, disease, jealousy, war, famine, starvation for power, a lust for money, emotional train wrecks, family, drama, racism, sexism. It's everywhere. Those are all the subplots. The main plot is love. It's the minor stories of erratic, broken people like Adam and Eve, like two human beings made like God, who would take a stroll with God in the cool of the garden to only open themselves up to be convinced by a talking, conniving beast that they could be God. And in so doing, they bring upon the curse on us 
that we are still reeling from. Or what about the minor story of Abraham, right? He was a nomad in the wilderness with no God and really no home. And the creator of the world calls him out and blesses him and says, many nations and generations will come to you forever. But who would then go on to actually lie about his wife, Sarah, being his sister, not once, but twice for fear of Pharaoh. And because of Abraham's unbelief, that God would do what he said he would do, he would dismiss his wife Sarah and take Hagar and Sarah's handmaid as his concubine. And then he would eventually send Hagar and her son Ishmael away because it was causing too much family disturbance. Or what about the minor story of Moses? Right, the one who God would use mightily to lead the people out of Egypt and for generations they would tell the story of freedom around a meal every single year. But not before getting so angry that he would senselessly murder an Egyptian and then run away and wander in the desert for years on end. And what about the story of Peter, right? The rock of whom God was building his church. But not before he would call Jesus a liar and prove him to actually be truthful by, de by denying he ever knew him. A traitor and poor friend by any standard. What about Paul, right? The writer of half the New Testament who made it his mission to obliterate Jesus' followers from the face of the earth before ever encountering Jesus himself. All those stories are important stories. They have great significance and meaning in the heritage of our faith, but they are not the story. The scriptures tell a single story of God. This is not a book about me, and it's not a book about you, and it's not a book about them. This is a book about God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. I think back of what I learned growing up, kind of on the felt board, Sunday school. Um, this is not a knock on my Sunday school teachers, who I love. Uh, but it, it is interesting. and The things that I were taught and the things I look back now, the story of David is not about him slaying a 10-foot-tall giant, and if you have enough courage in your life, you can slay the giants in yours. And the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is not about you having enough faith that if put in front of an evil dictator, that you could withstand a 300-degree furnace. And the story of Philippians 4.13 is not about how if you want to dunk the ball like LeBron James, like you can do that if you're four foot five. And the story of Jeremiah 29, 11 is not about how God wants to bless your life with material blessings and he has plans for you to succeed and thrive with a loaded 401k and material blessings and admirable kids. In the story of 2 Chronicles 7, 14, where it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That story is not a story about America. Bad theology kills. It kills. The Bible is a story, but it's not a story about us, namely. It's a story of a rescue mission and a thousand shadows. It's a story of one king and a million little people. It is a story of a kingdom and a lot of places that want to replace that kingdom. We call them the empire. It's the divine stepping into the humane, the playwright writing himself into the play, the main author becoming the main character. 
It's the story of God loving us, pursuing us, becoming us, redeeming us, and then inviting us into the story that he is writing by his sheer grace. I came across this picture sometime last year, and it is stunning to me. Okay. So at first, it's like a, it's a crazy visual of a rainbow. Um, but of course, this picture is much more than that. The small bar graph that runs across the bottom represents all of the chapters in the Bible. And you may not be able to tell this, but the books alternate in color between white and light gray, which doesn't show up super well on that. Um, But the length of each bar at the bottom denotes the number of verses in the chapter. Each of the 63,779 cross-references found in the Bible are depicted by a single arc in this photo. The color corresponds to the distance between the two chapters, creating this rainbow-like effect. The Bible is full of thousands and thousands and thousands of references, of stories, anecdotes, and yet it is one giant arc. And what I find so amazing about life is that all the stories and all the movies and all the stories and all the TV shows and all the stories in all of our lives are merely shadows and arrows to the story of God. The daughter who runs away from the father, the husband gazing at his wife at the altar, the friend sitting around the campfire in the cool of fall and the smell of food cooking over the stove on Christmas Eve, or the young mom finding great joy in her daughter playing tennis or her son reading, the petunias blooming on a 65-degree spring day, the construction worker who gets up before dawn and begins to build the house, and the addict getting sober and defeating alcoholism. These are great stories, great stories, but they are mere shadows of the story. God pursuing the prodigal son, God adoring the beloved spouse, God the very friend of sinners, God the one who prepares the meal that we feast on, God the doting parent who not only loves his kids but actually enjoys them, God the one who is thawing out all of winter, God the builder of the world and now the builder of his kingdom, and God the one who has defeated our enemy. The Bible is a story. A wild and unpredictable and unimaginable and sometimes unbelievable and sometimes difficult to comprehend story. And the invitation is to step into the story that's being written. Our hope and our goal is not just to be filled with knowledge of the story. It's to be captured by it and then to be found in it. The story that God is writing is a slow masterpiece. It is not fast or quick. It's not even headline-grabbing much of the time. Its climax is a poor man from no place filled who was purposefully murdered out of fear of political takeover by religious people. And three days later, he got up out of his own casket. It's the mundane and yet revolutionary. It's the ordinary and extraordinary, small enough to have impact between North Central and Broadway and big enough to span the history of time. It's the best story written. It's a story of divine grace, 
unrelenting pursuit, generous love by the Father through His Son with His Spirit. What a story. And if the first image is a window into a story, the second image is a mirror for ourselves. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If you've ever stood in front of a brand new mirror, you see clearly. You see all the blemishes, all the things that you don't like about yourself, all the features that you wish you could get rid of. It exposes you as a piece of glass. And the ironic beauty of the Bible is that it exposes us. We see things we didn't see. We start to look at the life of Jesus. We start to read the Sermon on the Mount. We start to look at the character of the most beautiful being in the universe, and we see how we are not Him. And that brings us to one of two places. We either open ourselves up to God and find such welcoming grace for us, or we hold up and we begin to excuse ourselves and rationalize ourselves to death. Does the Bible really talk about that particular thing or that's sort of lost in translation? We're not really sure what the original author meant and therefore we can do what it sort of says we can't do. Or is it that big of a deal if I did this? I mean, it's not like it's an everyday thing or relative to other issues in the world. It's pretty much nothing. Or it's not that bad, I mean, especially compared to what so-and-so has done. Or what is the Bible anyway? It just feels like an outdated piece of paper that has some nice suggestions, but not an actual, you know, mantra for my life. Maybe we don't say all those out loud. We probably don't, but we probably believe them. The scriptures point to Jesus, and Jesus does not shame us. But he does expose us by his very being. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed. None of us get an out. We are all under the same curse. We all wrestle with a variety of sins. We all experience the result of the fall. And like God, who is a skilled surgeon with a patient bleeding out, cuts us open to heal us. And we op- we, many of us, I personally, don't open the scriptures because I don't like what I see. Like when I don't look in the mirror. I don't like that I'm not kind enough or wise enough or patient enough. I don't have enough self-control. I'm not gentle enough. I don't find enough peace. In many ways, that's the point. We are not enough. The message of the scripture is not be enough. It is he is enough. And we need him and we desire him. And so we open the Bible and we read the life of Jesus. And we say, I want that life of peace and joy, of self-control and gentleness. I want the fruit of the spirit to be bearing fruit in my own life. And when we don't worship or submit our lives to him, we ask the spirit of God to soften our hearts. And the, the amazing thing is that God is pursuing us. And what is so hard about the scripture is to believe that. It is his heart to pursue. The goal of following Jesus is not for you to master the teachings of Jesus and move on. 
The goal of following Jesus is for you to come under the master teacher Jesus and follow him. It's less about knowing, much more about being. The question we have to ask ourselves is who are we becoming? And when we hold up our lives to the life of Jesus and the heart of God, and we see the Spirit of God at work in the entire New Testament, we see two things. We see God restoring the world, and we see that story, and we see the areas in our life that need restoring. We see the beautiful story of grace, and then we feel the full need of grace. And the story of God is that if we open ourselves to Him, He is more than willing and more than ready to forgive and welcome us, welcome us into his fatherly embrace. But we have to be honest about our need. We are people needing healing and forgiveness and restoration. Jesus is the point of scripture and his invitation is for you to step into his story. You'll get exposed and you'll get redeemed. You won't be shamed by him, but you will be loved by him. And our greatest hurdle will be to refuse his love by not opening up. There are two challenges in the midst of that reality for us. One of them will be to become a Bible nerd that knows a lot about the story and whose life doesn't reflect any more the grace of Jesus than before. Some, the saddest fact in my life is this. Some of the most doctrinally sound people that I know are some of the most arrogant. And a, a rich knowledge of the Bible without embodying the person to whom the Bible is about is really ugly. Here is a subtle but important distinction. We do not follow the Bible and therefore follow Jesus. We follow Jesus and we, therefore we find our place in the Bible. But we do not worship the Bible. We worship God. Our allegiance is to God. Our worship is of God. Our discipleship, our apprenticeship, our learning comes from Jesus first and foremost. And the life and the teaching and the practices of Jesus are found in the scriptures. It is the way in which God communicates to us by his spirit the grand story. And it is the way that he invites us into it. It is not merely important that we know the scripture. It's important that we become like who it's about. To know the Bible without submitting yourself to Jesus actually puts you above Jesus. And therefore above his life and teachings. And his message to you is love, and his invitation to you is repentance. The word that scripture uses to describe you is a Pharisee, a modern language we would say a hypocrite. Someone who knows, but not someone who loves. A pra uh, not a practitioner, an academic. The other challenge will be to dismiss the Bible as an old crummy book that has little relevance on my life. There are a lot of difficult topics in the scripture. There are a lot of challenging sentences translated in English in the Bible. Don't hear me say otherwise. It can feel daunting. It is daunting to me. But the invitation to you is not to become an intellectual critic. The invitation is to step into the story of how God is putting the world back together. 
We're not reading a mere account of history. We're reading about the God of love who is author and actor who invites us onto the stage to follow his lead. To dismiss the Bible or just to think, you know, I don't really need to read my Bible today or I don't really need to meditate on Scripture or I don't, I don't need to have my heart reset in the morning by God or I don't need to be cleansed or corrected or confronted with the things in my life communicates, I don't need Jesus. I just don't need Him. And the good news of the Gospel is that Jesus has come for people who need Him but don't think they do. You can bring all of your questions to Jesus and you can bring all of your ego about how much you don't need to or want to sit in silence with your heart and Bible open. You can bring that to Him because He is big enough and secure enough to handle that. His ask of you is just to come to Him. Both challenges, the one who worships the Bible but refuses to to submit to the lifestyle of Jesus and the person who dismisses the Bible and therefore rejects the lifestyle of Jesus have an authority problem. They are unwilling to submit to Jesus as Lord on both ends. And the scandal of the story we are invited into is that Jesus loves to love unwilling people. It is his specialty. His heart is to love. He will love the person who is ready to fight over doctrine all the time. And he will love the person who thinks the Bible is a misogynistic, war-torn book that has no relevance now. He will love both of them. We just have to open up. Would you pray with me? I'm going to ask Tommy just to come up and play for a minute. And I just want you to think of where you're at with Jesus, and particularly where you're at with Jesus and the Scripture. Where might He be leading you in 2021? What is one small step that you can take into His story? God, show us more of your beauty in the Scripture this year. We want to be formed by it. We want to know it and we want to embody it. Give us that grace, Jesus. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org. 